Well, good morning. My name is Tom, and I'm an elder here. I serve as an elder at LAFC. And today, as Tony said, we're going to be getting back into the book of Ephesians after we've been in Isaiah for the last few weeks. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians. And if you don't have one, our ushers are coming down the aisles. You can just flag them down. They'd be happy to provide one for you. So while you're turning to Ephesians, I want to read you a quote about wisdom and knowledge that was written about 500 years ago. So this was written around the time that Martin Luther was nailing his 95 theses to the doors of All Saints Church. And it says this. He says, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. So what he's saying is that if you want to try and make sense of what's going on in the world around you or try and make sense of what's going on inside of yourself, it begins with these two aspects of wisdom, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of yourself. So it's with these two things in mind that I want to open up Ephesians and we're going to read a passage that we covered a few months ago in Ephesians chapter one. And as we read it, I want you to be looking for God and yourself in the text. So Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 18, says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So now this text is packed full of things that we can see about God, but the one I want to focus in, to focus in on to start this morning is how it describes the authority of Christ. It says that he has authority over all things and for all ages. I mean, he spends about half of his prayer exalting Christ. And then at the end, we see that he describes what this means for us, that he's been made authority and head for the church. Notice how one flows into the other. Consider these words from Tozer. The, the Christian religion has to do with God and man, but its focal point is God, not man. Man's only claim to importance is that he was created in the divine image. In himself, he is nothing. And this really captures our time in Ephesians. We know we've been in Ephesians uh, since the beginning of the fall. And in chapters one through three, the focus is really on God. What God is doing, what he has been doing since creation, what he's been doing since before creation, and then what he's been doing since in bringing his body together, bringing Jew and Gentile into one body. And where we stand today in the text as we get back into Ephesians in chapter 4 is a transition in Ephesians where we move from looking at all that God has been doing and the call that he has had for us and we move into how do we live a life worthy of that calling, which is going to be our focus for this morning as well. So before we get going, let me just pray over our time together in a similar type of prayer to what Paul prayed here. 
Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would illuminate the eyes of our heart. That as we open your word in Ephesians, that we would grow a little deeper in our knowledge of you. And also from that, deeper in our knowledge of ourselves. And God, I also pray that you would give us this morning a broader vision for what the church is. And that you would be exalted. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so now we're going to read our actual text for today, which is just over one page. If you were in chapter one, we're in Ephesians chapter four. Our focus text for today is going to be verses 14 through 16, but I'm actually going to start up in verse 11 because 11 through 16 is really one continuous thought. So to give us some context, starting up in verse 11, it says, so Christ gave the apostles, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So just to explain what's going on here, at the beginning in these first two verses, we get a picture for what the church is. There are some, like the pastors and evangelists, who have a role of equipping the body, but then we see that all parts of the body, every single member, is important to it and has a role in the maturing of the body, in the, in the maturing of each individual member of it. In verse 13, then, we get sort of a vision statement for where the church is headed. And it says here in 13 that where we're headed is attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, to help us understand what that really means then, our text for today, verses 14 through 16, describes with some imagery what it looks like when we're on the process of getting there. So it uses this idea of physical maturation from infant to mature body as a metaphor to help us understand what spiritual maturation looks like. Now, when, when I read this story about, in, in verse 14, these infants getting tossed in the waves, it brings back a memory of mine from a few years ago. This should be a picture on the screen here from when I was an, uh, an early dad. This is a picture from Ocean City with, uh, at the time, my oldest was one and a half years old. She looks super excited, right, to get into the water, pulling her legs up. But she eventually warmed up to it, was splashing around. But have you ever seen one of those waves that goes like 10 or 15 feet further up the beach than like all the rest of them have for the last 30 minutes? One of those, soon after this picture, comes rolling in when I'm stepped back and just bowls her over this 18-month over, getting lost in the water. So all my dad instincts kick in, you know, the words that my parents had told me that like kids can drown in a quarter inch of water come running through my mind. I'm thinking the worst. So I'm like scooping through the water, kind of pull her up, shake her. Well, don't really shake her off, right? You don't, you don't shake babies, right? I know that. Pull her in and, and you just hope that you haven't traumatized this child too much. 
Now, she's here today and she would testify to you that to this day, she still prefers sandcastles way more than boogie boarding. Um, and she may now just be figuring out why that is. But this is the imagery that comes to mind for me when it comes to being tossed in the waves like a child. And then in verse 15, we get the contrast to that, which it describes as mature body. Now, I'm curious, does anyone here today, by a show of hands, feel like today you are in the best physical shape of your entire life? Okay, it's about the same as first service, right? And I will tell you what I told them. You all need to get a rec membership, okay? There should at least be one. But, uh, but this, so I'm going to just try and explain then since uh, we, we need a little help on this. Mature body... What it's describing here is a strong, physically mature body, the contrast of an infant that's getting tossed around in the waves, okay? But remember, this is just physical imagery to show us something spiritual. So really, what it's trying to describe is that we're all in the process of spiritually maturing, spiritually growing up. And perfection doesn't come in this life, right? The spiritually totally mature is Jesus Christ, so we are all just on a journey towards that. Now I wanna consider just the nature of kids for a moment. Most of you probably have some kids in your life in some way. Either you volunteer in Kidman, maybe you're a parent or a grandparent, an aunt or an uncle. And I believe all of us would testify that one of the fundamental characteristics of young children is that they are incredibly dependent. Now I've got three kids. My youngest, uh, Jacob, is five, Ella is seven, and Brooklyn is eight. So what do you think is the number one word used in our house on a daily basis? Okay, no is a close second. That's not the one I'm going for. That's probably at least top three. No, mom is the number one word used in our house because kids are incredibly dependent. And what I'm learning as, as our kids start to grow up, that when I've heard parents say, I, I'm trying to help my kids grow more dependent, independent, what they mean when they say they want them to grow more independent is they want them to grow more independent of us, right? Because all of us as human beings are still incredibly dependent creatures. We depend on so many things around us, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually. We are all dependent creatures, for example, I think a good picture of this is those shows like Alone or Man vs. Wild. Have you ever seen these? Where they like drop people off in the middle of wilderness without anything except the clothes on their back. And sometimes they don't even get that. Although I would not recommend those particular ones. Um, I, I, it, just, I've heard from other people that there is a show like that. Um, but what they, what they really depict for us is just how dependent all of us are on every, other things, the things around us. You know, if you would take me and just drop me in my own kitchen without my wife and come back a week later, I would still be alive, but I probably would be unshaven and scooping peanut butter out of the jar with my bare hands. I mean, I'd be subsisting, but just barely above that line. But my point is that all of us, physically, emotionally, spiritually, we are all dependent on things around us. Now contrast this with the nature of God, who existed before all things, who created all things. 
The, the God who's declared in Psalm 90, verse 2, which says, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in communion. And he's not a God that's just earlier in history. Jude 25 tells us that he existed before the ages, which another way of saying that is before time, outside of time. He is the only truly independent being. So now we call the total independence and self-sufficiency of God his aseity, okay? And this attribute, which we're trying to grow in wisdom and know more about who God is, this attribute is so fundamental to our understanding of God that the theologian Babnik said, all other attributes of God were derived from this one. Everything that God needs for his godness, he has in himself. And out of this, as creator, he is the source then of all things. Now in the body of Christ, what we see is these two things come together. That we who are totally dependent and insufficient are brought together with the one who is totally independent and self-sufficient. So this is by his design from the beginning. So then as we mature, as we talk about this process of maturing today, what we are really talking about is us shifting our dependence from things that are created or all of the things that we've known since birth to the one who created all things. So another word that's used for this maturation is sanctification which is why Jen Wilkin describes sanctification as the process of learning increasing dependence and not autonomy. But you might be sitting there thinking, okay, I, I agree. I am dependent as a human being. I'm dependent on all kinds of things. And I also recognize that God has everything that he needs for, for anything in himself. He has everything in himself to meet all of my needs. And it sounds like, too, from this passage that the church must play a role in, in us shifting our dependence and us maturing into the fullness of Christ. But what I really need to know is what does this mean for me when I wake up in the morning or as I go throughout my day? Or what does it mean as I plan for my week ahead? Well, I'm glad you asked because we're going to be talking about that. Um, I'm going to reread uh, verse 15 and 16 to help us begin to answer this question. So starting in verse 15, instead speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So here we get one of the simplest and most profound statements, and possibly the most ignored, in all of Ephesians, which is speak the truth in love. This is so important to how a healthy church is supposed to operate that this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to break it up and look at each of these three things in part. We're going to look at speak, we're going to look at truth, and we're going to look at love. Okay? So moving into the first part, let's talk about speaking for a minute. As we as a church go through the rest of Ephesians the next couple months, you're going to see that speaking is a recurring theme. Let me just show you a few places that I found as I was looking through this. We're going to talk about speaking truthfully 
in chapter 4, verse 25. We're going to talk about avoiding unwholesome talk, chapter 4, verse 29. We're going to talk about speaking with psalms and hymns, chapter 5, verse 19. Giving thanks, chapter 5, verse 20. And even Paul's request that the church pray for him as he speaks, chapter 6, verse 19. In other words, we're going to have plenty of time later to talk about how to speak. The encouragement this morning is simply going to be to speak. Now, I realize as I look around this room that not everyone here needs my encouragement to speak. You guys know who you are. The people chuckling around you also know who you are. So just hang tight. Your encouragement is going to come next. But for the rest of us, speaking is a part of your call as the body of Christ. You have a set of gifts, each of you, have a set of gifts, experiences, and a relational world that is absolutely unique to you. No one else on the face of the planet has that combination of of experiences and skill and relationships. So what what it's saying here is that there's no one else that the spirit can plant his words into in the moment that you're being called to speak with your lips in the situation that you find yourself. Do you follow me? Another way of saying this is that as we collectively, as LAFC, as we are obedient to this command and we begin speaking to each other in this way, what we're really doing is becoming a visible manifestation of Christ who we saw in verse 13 is filling everything in every way with himself. And what I mean by that is that in Christ, there is a fountain. He is the source of so much truth and love that it can fill the hearts of all of his people simultaneously. And so then we as a body, when we're obedient to speaking those things that the spirit is putting on our heart and allowing it to flow up into our lips and out through our speech and into the church, we then, becoming, we then become a physical manifestation of Christ. We declare who Christ is to the world and to the heavenly beings. So the command then is simply speak. Now, I do know some of the reasons that we choose to stay silent when we should be speaking. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes we fear rejection or getting hurt. Sometimes we've been hurt in the past, and that past hurt keeps us from speaking when we're being prompted to speak. Maybe you don't think you have anything to offer. Now, also, there's another reason why we don't speak. It might be because some of us have filled our lives with so many things that we simply don't have the space to be speaking. So it isn't that we're choosing not to speak. It's simply that we don't have opportunities to speak. You know, we can come here possibly for an hour or two, and this might be the extent of your involvement with the body of Christ over the course of our week, which is why sometimes I think when we bump into each other at Bombergers, we think it's a God moment because to bump into someone from LAFC out in the real world is such a rare instance. My point is, though, is that we all need to be proactively In order for this to happen, we all need to be proactively seeking out these spaces where speaking can happen. 
which is why we do things like life groups or ABFs or Women's Bible Fellowship. Those are places where people come together, uh, the, the body of Christ comes together, where we can develop relationships with one another and, and speaking like this can occur. And some of those relationships can turn into discipleship relationships where you are joining someone who's ahead of you or behind you in the journey. Although I will say that as you seek those out, be sure to be putting as much energy into finding people who are behind you on the journey as you are ahead of you on the journey. We're supposed to be not just listening, but also speaking. The one part of the body that you will not find in scripture is the role of consumer, okay? So be constantly looking as, as, a, in, as the body of Christ for these places where you can be building relationship to speak. Now, there are other things that could classify this as well. I'll even include things like digital communication in this, sending emails, text, Foxer, Marco Polo, however it is that you choose to uh, communicate with other people in the church, although I will say that it seems to me like the further we get away from embodied speaking and listening, the less effective it tends to be for this purpose. So just be aware of that, which is also why I, would, I don't think this text is talking about things like articles or podcasts or any kind of online content, even if it is someone in the body of Christ from somewhere far off. Because really the language we get here is relational language. It's not just intellectual consumption. It requires both speaking and listening. Okay, so the second part of this is just as important as the first. What does it say the content of our speech is supposed to be? That's useful for maturing. Yes, the content is supposed to be truth. So I wanna just take a moment here and articulate for you some things that are not inherently truthful in themselves. They might contain elements of truth, but in themselves, they are not truth. So the first one would be science. I have a bachelor's degree in science. That does not make my science truth. Your science is not inherently truthful. There is no science which is truth. Political views, not truth. My political views aren't truth. Your political views aren't truth. There aren't any political views which are truth. Feelings, while they might contain elements of truth, are not inherently truthful. My feelings are not inherently truthful. Your feelings are not inherently truthful. So then what is truth? Well, truth is Jesus Christ and everything that God has spoken in this book. So to the extent that all of those things and all of our speech is in alignment with this book, they can be useful for the maturing of the body of Christ. But to the extent that they are not, they're worthless. Now, I understand that in this church, we have people with all kinds of passions. So please don't misinterpret what I'm saying as to not be vocal about those things that you're passionate about. But what I am asking you to do is that as you speak, let your speech be in alignment with what you find in this book and always be gracious and, and um, filled with salt, seasoned with salt. Thank you which really leads us to the third part of this command, which is one that's directed not at 
action, but at the motive. You see, the first two of these, speaking and truth, can be done in your own power. The the Pharisees and the Sadducees who crucified our Lord spoke with words of scripture in the gathering every single week. We even have a, a picture of Satan who is speaking with words of truth. And I think we can all agree that that's probably not what this text is talking about. We're supposed to speak the truth in love. So the question is, how then do we learn to speak the truth in love? And we can find the answer for that, I think, in the first two words of verse 16, which say, from him. Because, listen, love, it can be a confusing topic, especially in our age. Because there is a human love that consists of our natural desires and urges. But the love spoken of here is not something that we can muster up. Because it is a love which flows out of our connection with the head. Which also means that sometimes acting in this kind of love might not look like the types of love you see out in the world. So I want to read to you a few excerpts from the book Life Together, written by the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who if you're not familiar with him, he was a theologian um, who died in a concentration camp, just to give you an idea of time period. And, And he says this, human love is directed towards the other person for his own sake. Spiritual love, or the love that comes from the head, loves him for Christ's sake. Human love has little regard for the truth. It makes truth relative since nothing, not even truth, must come between it and the beloved person. Human love does not desire, human love desires the other person, his company, his answering love, but it does not serve him. Spiritual love, however, comes from Jesus Christ. It serves Christ alone. It knows that it has no immediate access to the other person. Where Christ bids me to maintain fellowship for the sake of love, I will maintain it. Where his truth enjoins me to dissolve a fellowship for the sake of love, there I will dissolve it despite all of my human protest. Therefore, spiritual love proves itself in that everything it says and does commends Christ. So what he's saying here is that we need to learn to put our entire faith, our entire dependence on Christ as we relate to one another. Let me just say that again. What he's saying here is that we need to learn to put our entire dependence on Christ as we relate to one another. Because it's only through Christ that we have access to the love that has existed for eternity within the Godhead. When, we, when we, we can only speak the truth in love if that love comes out of the reality that he first loved us. So out of this, our default, our default posture to one another is to trust. Not because our brother or sister has earned our trust, but because we are one in Christ. Our default posture as we speak is to protect, not because that person doesn't have what's coming to them necessarily, but because we know that all of what we had coming to us has fallen on Christ. Our default posture 
always hopes. There is no room for cynicism in relationships within the body of Christ. And our default posture is to persevere. And this is why we're here. The church is gathered here today, not for emotionally arousing music or for intellectually stimulating sermons or for intellectually stimulating sermons, but to magnify Jesus who is at work in us. He is the ligaments that are mentioned in verse 16, which join and hold the body together. The imagery of ligaments describes just how interconnected he is throughout his entire body and into each individual member of it. It's it's a lot like the vine language that you see in John 15. So we remain in him, he also remains in us. And it's from him through us that he builds his church, that he matures his church as we speak the truth in love. And it's through living this way that we become a visible manifestation to the world and angels that there is one body with one head, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So we're not done quite yet because our passage also talks about some things that we're gonna run into along the way. You see, in the body of Christ here at LAFC, we've got people all over the maturity spectrum and that isn't necessarily a bad thing because if we became a church of all just mature believers, what that would imply is that there are no new believers coming into the mix. So instead of being defined by our collective outward maturity, what we really wanna be defined by is our process of pursuing the fullness of Christ together, pursuing maturity and sanctification. And so I want you to know that as we're in the process of doing this, that you're gonna run into things along the way. So I just want you to be warned and not surprised. The first is our flesh, both our flesh and the flesh of the person that we're gonna be walking beside in the church. From the very first day that we put our faith in Christ, there is still something that pushes back against us. There's a weight upon us. It causes us to stumble. In our text next week, we will refer to it as our old self, but it goes by a lot of different names. Paul also calls it a body of death. He, he calls it our flesh. Calvin called it a mass of corruption. Spurgeon likened it to having a dead, stinking corpse of your old self strapped to you like a backpack, okay? Dead, but it still causes you to stink. Now, that old nature, like this old body here, is passing away. It's not gonna be with us for eternity like the new one that we have in Christ that's being matured right now. That new one is permanent. And on the day we put our faith in Christ, we became a new creation and we were instilled with new emotions, new desire, new will, new affection, which all rolls up into action, new action that is directed towards God. But in this life, we still live with the tension of the two, of the old and the new. So our passage today is about the growing up into the new self. Romans 6.19 tells us that we should be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. 
But where we all start, we all start pretty wise about what is evil and like infants about what is good. So to the measure that we attain the fullness of Christ in this life, that old nature is put to death. Alternatively, to the measure that we stay immature in this life, that old self remains strong. So just be aware of this, um, be aware of this in yourself and in your relationships as you speak the truth in love. Expect to contend with the flesh, both in yourself and in the other person. But in addition, verse 14 also warns us about external threats, crafty people who are deceitfully scheming. And I want to look a little bit closer at this than what we get in Ephesians 4. So if you want, you can flip over to Colossians 2, but I'm just going to read a handful of verses from there. And it's going to sound familiar because a lot of the language here is very similar. A lot of the themes are similar. I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, and then also 18 and 19. So verses 8 through 10 of Colossians chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental forces of the world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So now we don't have time to dig into this with great detail this morning, so I'm just going to sum it up like this. Over the course of your life, you will encounter prideful, outspoken, persuasive people who, whether knowingly or not, are going to try to teach you to put your trust and and dependence into something other than Christ. They are going to assign spiritual meaning to temporal things. And they might even go as far, as far as to say that if you don't agree with them in this, that you might be missing a part of your Christian faith or that you might not be a Christian altogether. Now, I know that some of you have had personal experiences with this. And I'll say from my perspective, I have seen much more of this in the last few years. But what's clear from the text is that people who speak this way are dangerous to the church. Because they are not speaking out of their connection with the head, but out of their unspiritual mind. So just be warned that as you walk this life and as you're walking this life with others, there will be false teaching like this that we need to be on guard against. So in the course of walking this path to maturity with each other, we're going to um, encounter outside threats. We're also going to contend with our own flesh until the day that we die. But there's just one more thing that I'm going to touch on just briefly here. Going back to Ephesians 4, you'll notice in verse 14 that the false teachers are described as deceitfully scheming. 
Now, that word scheming is used only one other time in Ephesians. It's in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, which talks about putting on the whole armor of God so that you can take your stand against the schemes of the devil. And church, I think this is the real call to maturity. Yes, in our immaturity, we will be susceptible to false teaching. And yes, we will contend with that flesh until the day that we die. But our real battle is against flesh, is not against flesh and blood. There is a ruler of the kingdom of the air that is shrouding this world in darkness. And he is lying and scheming against the church and against every member of it both you and the people around you. So we're in a struggle, whether we acknowledge it or not. Your brother and sister in Christ is in a struggle, whether they acknowledge it or not. Flaming arrows are being pointed at us, and what we're saying this morning is that infants aren't strong enough to pick up the shield. We're not sufficient in ourselves to withstand the attack. We need to be learning to put our entire dependence on Christ, to be matured by him. And remember, his plan to mature us is us through speaking the truth in love. And church, if we all are doing this, this church will continue to stand firm regardless, stand firm in God, regardless of what comes at us in the years ahead. So today we're gonna close with a show of our unity. That we who are many are one body because there is one loaf. We're gonna take communion together. So if you have repented of your sins and you trust Jesus for your salvation, regardless of whatever church you call your home, we invite you to take communion with us as we remember Jesus together. So before we take the bread, we're gonna take a minute to pray, to examine our hearts, to listen to what the Spirit might be speaking to us in this moment right now. And after about a minute, we'll take the bread together. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24, it says, after supper, I'm sorry. And when he said this, he had given thanks and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's through the sacrifice of Christ that we are being transformed together 
into his likeness from glory to glory. And so we remember that after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, we remember back to what you did at the cross. And we know that from that point on, you have not been idle, that your son has been embodied sitting on the throne, building up his church to be displayed before all the heavens and all the earth. And so we exalt you this morning. We exalt you on your throne. And we, we, we sing your praise that to you for all time would be all praise and all glory forever. Amen. Amen. So we have the opportunity to join together in song and respond to what we just received. Would you stand and join us?
So if you're with us this morning and you have not put your faith in Jesus, I hope that you can leave here today with a better understanding of what the church is. That we are comprised of imperfect, dependent people who have been called by God and now place our entire faith and dependence in Him alone. So if you want to talk more about Jesus or if anyone has anything you'd like to talk about or anything you'd like us to pray for, you can talk with the folks around you. You can also stop by in our encounter room in the back side here of the auditorium. And for the rest of us, I hope that you got a picture of what the church is, that this is not just something that we do or go to, but it's more a part of who we are than anything else in life because it is the only thing that will last In Christ, the church will last for eternity. So with that in mind, as you go forward today, just be considering what it means to live a life worthy of that call. Go in peace. You are dismissed.